Hello again, it's Phil Croshaw here from Passions. And today I am so thrilled to be joined in this podcast by a man who is passionate about fishing cats. How amazing is that? Enjoy. Well, hello, and a very warm welcome to another edition of Passions. And today we have another international flavour of an episode. And today we're joined by Ashwin Naidu. And Ashwin Naidu is in good old Arizona in USA. So there's a time difference, which we've had to figure out, uh, but we've managed to do it. All the technology is working so far, which is always a bit of a dangerous thing to say. Uh, a very warm welcome to Passions, Ashwin. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, what's your wife doing in the background? <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's, 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 she's adjusting the window before she takes off the work. So this was perfect because it started recording right now and she's in it. Yay! <laughs> Did you know you're in it, Abba? You're in the show now. <laughs> yep. She, she just said bye and she took off. <laughs> but... Uh, it, it was fun to start the interview, uh, Phil, with, with her chatting with you uh, in her English accent, which was it's pretty amazing. Uh, this, yeah. is my this is my fake accent, by the way. Um, uh, if I talk to you in my original accent, you know, I don't think everybody on your show will understand. <laughs> but uh, well, you've obviously got that flexibility. So that's flexibility. good. You're multi I'm going to put you down as multilingual on the, yeah. on the notes. Yeah. 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 And, and for, for my Indian friends, you know, um, this is what happens when you travel internationally is, you know, your accent switches, uh, to wherever you go. So <laughs> it changes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to keep all that in because I think it shows how, how real we are, doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, Abby will get a starring role, even though she doesn't know it yet. So yeah. I'll start again with that bit. Um, tell us about yourself and what your passion is. All right. Well, I'm here today telling you about my passion for wildlife conservation and then how I'm obsessed with wildlife. And when I was a kid in India, my dad used to take me out on hikes on the weekends and we used to go climb rocks. And then that led to a safari that my mom funded for my dad and me to the Serengeti in the Africa. And that just completely changed my life. And I said, you know, in India, we're, we're, we do our engineering degree or we do medicine, you know, that's like the starter. Uh, it's like most people like, okay, are you going to be a doctor or an engineer? I was like, okay, fine. I got to choose one or the other. So I chose engineering, but um, uh, in the end I was like, huh, huh, I want to do something not for humans, but for animals because I was a big time, you know, animal lover. I wanted to do something for little cats and dogs and uh, the, 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 the energies merged uh, in my late teens. And then I found out, okay, fine. Wildlife conservation. Let's see what we can do for that. And, uh, that's, that's where I am right now. 20 years later as a, as a conservationist or a conservation professional focused on trying to protect one species and its habitat. We'll get into that. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and as I said to you, um, we've done lots of uh, conservation interviews on passions. Uh, we've had Ian Redmond talking about the gorillas and Jane Galton talking about cheetahs. And this morning I did an interview with Simon Jones that people haven't seen yet about rhinos. And uh, when I was contacted uh, to interview you, I had to read it two or three times because your passion, if you like your, if you think of a a, a passion is your is the top level, which is what you've just described. But when you go down to the next level, you have a passion for fishing cats. Wonderful. Right. <clears throat> Talk to me about fishing cats. Okay, so that's a great way to put it. You know, you go down these levels, right? Uh, it's funny, like even in wildlife. So I thought, okay, fine, let's see, we're humans, we got to do something for humanity. And then suddenly there's these animals, okay, we got to do something for the animals, right? We got to do something for nature. That's another level. And then in that level, there are levels, right? So a lot of the cute and cuddly animals get a lot of attention, whereas a lot of the creepy and crawly animals don't get as much attention. I think that's a great graph that was published. Um, and so... I was looking at cats. I was obsessed with wild cats in general because I did my I did my bachelor's project on tigers and leopards. I did my in India. That was in India. Uh, in in the U.S., I did my master's and PhD on mountain lions and bobcats. And I just um, was really interested in doing something for wild cats. And in wild cats, I found there are about forty species of wild cats. And a lot of the big cats get a lot of attention, lions, tigers, leopards, you know, snow leopards, uh, you know, jaguars, all these big cats get a lot of attention. There are a lot of smaller and, you know, cats that, there's so many cats that, that are there in the world, but they don't get any little or almost no attention. Like, you know, the, the Andean cat, the palace cat, the... Pampas cat, the uh, black-footed cat, the bay cat, you know, and, and then the fishing cat is one of them. And then there's also the rusty spotted cat, which is the world's smallest cat, um, and which I say is about the size of a wine bottle, maybe slightly larger, but uh, it is the world's smallest cat. Uh, and I thought, okay, fine, fishing cats uh, live in my backyard in India. Um, well, by backyard, I mean, you know, in the in the region where I am originally from. And uh, I've studied all these big cats. Um, and how do I apply all this knowledge and skill and whatever it is that we've learned about all these cats into trying to protect and understand those smaller cats? And I found that, okay, one of the smaller cats is a fishing cat. It's pro it was when I when we started work our, our, our first project in 2015 on trying to study or learn more about these cats in India, it was listed as endangered um, by the IUCN, which is uh, you know, a universal uh, agreement on, <clears throat> on what the uh, status of species is on the world, in the world. So, so yeah, and, and that kind of one thing led to another, it's like, okay, we discovered these fishing cats. Yes, they're there in some of these areas that, you know, people haven't documented them before. We were the first to kind of tell the world, oh yeah, look, there are fishing cats here. Of course, you know, local people had seen it. There were a lot of 
documentation and there was a lot of documentation inside locally but globally there wasn't much attention being given to these cats in you know these remote coastal parts of india as well as uh, parts in indonesia sri lanka um, and you know in, in its entirety 11 range countries in south and southeast asia so if you look at the fishing cats range it goes you know all the way from southern pakistan to um 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 Cambodia, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, so Southeast Asia. So uh, 11 range countries in South and Southeast Asia. Uh, and there were records of fishing cats in Indonesia and um, uh, not, not, not recently uh, anymore, but it kind of shows that there's a lot that was left to be learned on these cats. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of discovering the species and working to protect it and its habitat was what drew us in. And then after that, we learned that it's not just about the cat, it's about its habitat. And you know, fishing cats, as the name suggests, they love fish and they, they're wetland adapted cat species. They love to swim in the water and catch their prey. I mean, it was just amazing. So we, saw, we thought, okay, well, these fishing cats love wetlands so they're, they're in these rivers and they're near these rivers and lakes in the inland areas. And on the coastal areas, they live in these unique forests called mangrove forests um, in, in South and Southeast Asia. And we thought, wow, you know, this cat is much more than what it is. It's actually a symbol for all these wetland, uh, wetland habitats. And we thought, okay, this has got to be a much bigger project than what it is. So we started Fishing Cat Conservancy, the whole, an entire organization dedicated to protecting the cat and its and its globally important wetland and mangrove habitat. Absolutely fabulous. Now, by this time, everybody's thinking, what does a fishing cat look like? It's not like a sphinx cat, is it, where it's got no hair and it looks like the devil has just come out of hell. So show us your picture of... Uh, that you've got on your phone of the uh, of the fishing cat. Yeah, this is the conversation starter pretty much everywhere I go. So I don't know. It's yeah, I can see reflect. that. All right. So here's... Yeah, we can, we can see that. Oh, now that is cutesy, isn't it? Yep, yep. So, so you've got is... everybody's attention now. Now everybody knows it's a cutie. Everybody yeah. Got every... <laughs> you've got everybody's attention. So uh, who called, how did it come up with the name? Who, who actually gave it that name? Fishing well, cat. Huh, there's, well, I know scientifically its name is Prionelius vivernus and there's scientists named Bennett, uh, last name Bennett, uh, you know, who had uh, described the nomenclature or, you know, uh, defined or stated the nomenclature for the species itself. Um, but uh, I do not know when the common name the fishing cat was given. Probably around that same time, uh, maybe it was called something. But uh, uh, so I don't know. That's a great question. I should probably find out when fishing cat was given. But as far as I know, at least the last 20, 25 years, it's been fairly commonplace in the in the books on in you know in science literature. Yeah, it's a great name anyway. Um, can I just ask you, the, the, your, your microphone, I think, is just uh, rustling a little bit on your shirt. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll, get, we'll, we'll move up front then. All right. This shouldn't happen. 
Yeah, it's just it's I can hear it because I've got my earphones on. I can hear it rustling a little bit. So okay, I'll, I'll edit this bit out and then we'll 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 carry on as we are. Okay. Right. Yeah, sure. And so the name is pretty apt, Fishing Cat, because uh, you've the, most of the time we've observed them in the wild. Um, they are out looking for fish to catch, and you know it's a cat that catches fish, and so it's a fishing cat. So it's very uh, easy. A lot of people confuse, you know, the first time they hear the name fishing cat, they're like, okay, is there a fisher? Well, it's not a fisher. The fisher is a different species, and it's it. And sometimes people confuse it with catfish. Now, catfish is a is a fish species, and so. And of course, you know, the the lingo uh, basically leads us to just going to say catfish uh, in, in the first place. But I think, um, you know, once you see the fishing cat in yeah, the photo of the fishing cat, you, you never forget it. It's, it's such a unique animal. It's got both spots and stripes that run down the back of its uh, neck. And... Um, they're, it's amazing if you watch them in the water. They go in the water and they come out of the water and they just, you know, they don't even shake their fur off or anything like that. The water kind of like drips away and um, yeah, yeah I mean, they don't care. That's, that's so alien to the average person, idiot like me, because I think of cats as hating water. The yeah, idea that cats... they're actually going towards it and jumping in and swimming in it and catching fish, that's that's amazing in itself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the best, uh, yeah, the best kind of uniqueness to 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 this cat. And if you, even if you look like there are other cats like jaguars and tigers that jump into water or, or rather, you know, go through water to catch their prey. But these cats particularly are, you know, they 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 love water. They they hang out around water. Their habitat is wetlands and and uh, swamps and and rivers and and mangroves. So they're they're uniquely adapted to to being close to water. So they're water loving cats, which is um, which you can say clearly about fishing cats and not many other cats. So have you have you got any idea then why you chose the fishing cat? As you say, there's lots of different cats. Mm -hmm. Any particular reason you can think of why you chose the fishing cat? Because Apart from anything else, the amount of time and effort and energy and passion that you're putting into it, you know, you know, it takes up a lot of time and a lot of energy. Any particular reason why you chose that that cat? Because obviously, as you mentioned, I think there it is at risk or it has been at risk. Um, can you relate anything to back to why you chose that particular cat? Um, it's more it's more. I, I, I agree with you 100 um, percent. So we, initially it was science that guided um, me or in general, like the people who I was working with, okay, fine, that this cat, not much is known about it. Let's try to try to learn some more about it. Um, and uh, we, we started a project to learn more about it. Okay, we can do something for the fishing cat. Uh, but then later on, it, 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 it almost felt like, okay, well, if there's one thing that we can change in this world is to is to is to give the fishing cat a better place um, on the on the planet, or is to do something for it that would you know change the landscape uh, and make a difference in in the in that one species. Um, 
it was all about focus. You know, it's like, okay, fine. We can do a lot for uh, so many different species of animals. But what if we could just focus in and dial in, try to do some, it's like, it's like doing one thing well versus, you know, 10 different things, you know, partially. And yeah. um, that was what drew me. And, and generally my psychology tends to be like, um, I want to focus on just one thing and just try to do that as best as possible. And the, the problem with the fishing cat was the more I, the more we learned, the more we realized, or ra rather, what is that statement? The more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it yeah. was like, it just kept opening up worlds for us or it's like, okay, yeah, we discovered the fishing cat. Oh no, this population is now, facing a lot of issues because the people here are cutting down the mangroves and they're turning them into fish and shrimp ponds and people there, there's a huge demand across the world for aquaculture and and seafood and all of this is coming you know if you look at the packages of seafood in your grocery store it's basically coming from cut down mangroves in in, in india and sri lanka and thailand and vietnam and cambodia and it's like wow you know now it's linked with the economy now you know we've got this vicious cycle that's basically deforesting the fishing cats habitat and you know we're losing the species okay well what do we do about it i mean we we know it's a cool species and we've got to do something and then and then it's like okay we can't just let it go right now we can just oh yeah we've discovered this cat we've published uh, some research on it saying oh wow you know we this cat is there you know, if you look at any research paper on these animals, uh, they'll say, yeah, this species does this or is like this or behaves like this, yada, yada, yada. But in the end, it's facing a huge problem because of habitat loss or, or uh, you know, um, fragmentation or uh, poaching or there's always this line that says this animal is basically screwed because of human caused issues. And, yeah. and so, and so we're like, we can't just leave this there. We, we got, we got to delve further into this and try to solve this problem. And lo and behold, it's, it's not about the fishing cat anymore. It's about everything. We start with the fishing cat. It's, it's like the flagship, right? But underneath it, it's, it's, it's about people. It's about economy. It's about, uh, restoring its habitat. It's about sustainability. It's about carbon offsets. It's about basically ecosystem restoration. That's our website. If you go to fishcat.org, you'll see working to protect Earth's most valuable ecosystems. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Fish, <laughs> fishcat.org. We need to we need to check that out. Oh, no, absolutely no doubt about it. But it's interesting you should say that because I would say that's been uh, one of the takeaways I've got from all the interviews I've done with uh, all the conservation people that I've been lucky enough to speak to on this in this uh, in these shows um, is is the is how it impacts like dominoes. Everything's kind of impacts on everything else, and you know, and a number of them have talked about the the, the conflict between the local people who have to live, mm -hmm. you know, versus you know they have to they have to feed their family absolutely. Versus, you know, versus the, the 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 other side of it, which is the poaching and with rhinos this morning, as I say, talking to Simon Jones. Um, but then at the same time, the locals have to have to live. And there's, that, there's, it's, it's, it's very broad, isn't it? Everything's interwoven, I suppose, what, for want of a better expression. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm. That's exactly the kind of thing we're in. And uh, mm. the, the whole idea is to, for us now, you know, believe it or not, what we do is we write contracts with people who own lands and we're trying to incentivize restoration and reforestation of that land such that it provides for a nature-based livelihood to the people who are working that land. And so it's a win-win-win for fishing cats, the forest on the ground, uh, and the people. And that's our work. We are working to support people to do conservation and including myself, like you said in the beginning of the podcast, you know, how'd you end up making a livelihood out of this? It literally is, can we, the question is, can we create nature-based livelihoods that help solve these problems? And if we can create more conservation and nature-based livelihoods that are more enriching than the, than the livelihoods that are actually destroying nature, you know, then we've got a case. We can say that, hey, you know what? And that's what that's what I experienced when I went to Tanzania and started my career in wildlife. I saw my two field guides. By the way, their names were Thomas and Jerry. So Tom and Jerry. <laughs> they were you like, couldn't make that one up, could you? I did, I could, <laughs> you go to Serengeti, they're out there guiding safaris. And they're like, this is our livelihood. We live and eat because of this wildlife. And that's why we want to protect it. We're yeah, going to do these safaris yeah. generation yeah. after generation. We're going to guide safaris yeah. generation after generation. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to make a livelihood out of the wildlife in our backyard. And that's the level we got to hit with. That's the kind of economic uh, stability we need to hit with all of these areas around the world where wildlife and natural resources are valued much better or much more than stupid gold or you know coins that you know it's like i don't get it it's not gonna feed gold's not gonna feed you you know it's like <laughs> yeah <clears throat> i totally get it um do you think that in terms of the the population or humanity's perspective on this whole situation with frankly in brutal terms destroying the planet that we do so well mm -hmm. has is there any indications that people have become more aware or more understanding of it in the last 20, 25 years? Absolutely. Or is it as bad as ever? Or are people now starting to think, change think, the behavior? Because that's the key, isn't it? Changing the behavior. Absolutely. I mean, it's got to change. The behavior has got to change. And if it mm. does, so the thing is, if it doesn't happen intrinsically as humans ourselves are going to change, it will happen naturally. Because I know <clears> that there's na nature's, or I, I can see that their nature has set limits. I mean, even if you look at capitalism and all of the greed that is driving the world in many ways, there's a cap, nature caps it, you know? And, and, and at, at one point you got to start thinking about sustainability. It's like, oh, wow, you know, we, uh, you know, like Mahatma Gandhi said, which this is my quote, guiding quote for life. There's enough in the world for everybody's need, but there's not enough in the world for everybody's greed. Uh, and so greed only, mm. you know, leads you right. to leverage. Greed leads you to leverage. And then because of leverage, basically things come crash crashing down. And uh, we've been subsidized um, by the earth for a very long time. You know, the natural resources have just been abundant for us. And now we're realizing, oh, my God, this is just one planet. <clears throat> we, only, we only have one planet. To maintain and balance and if we do not change something intrinsically we're in deep trouble and it's it's already in to your point 
yes, I'm very optimistic about the future because we've already started making changes in the right direction. And inevitably, inevitably, uh, things that are not going to factor in sustainability of natural resources and the planet are going to suffer. Uh, inevitably, we will have to transition to a sustainable nature, not fully, maybe not fully nature-based right now. It's, it's not evident, but we're going to have to start making steps in that direction because we can't be consuming uh, or, or overconsumption is not going to basically end, end well. Yeah, it reminds me actually, it'd be interesting to get your input into this because it reminds me, a, a very good friend of mine is a, a you know, world-renowned world, world cardiologist and uh, we've done speaking engagements together and I've mentioned this on another show, but we've um, done speaking engagements together at conferences and I talk about digital media and a way of growing your business using podcasts and video and things like that. And he mm -hmm. talked about um, looking after yourself and keeping your health so that you're yeah. able to do those things. Uh, but the reason I mention it, there's a, there's a relevance to this, is he said that he just does these talks all over the world. He said, but the reality is that the vast majority of people, they only act when they have... And what he calls an event. In other words, you know, they know about heart attacks. They know about, um, you know, cholesterol generally. But then they don't actually act until suddenly they have a heart attack. Yep. Or they have a, you know, the warning sign, the real life warning sign. Do you think there's an element of that in this whole area of conservation where the danger is that we need to almost have a, 5,000 foot bloody tidal wave to come in just to kind of make the point. Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's, what, that's what COVID's doing right now, you know. Uh, the idea that, you know, COVID's basically a zoonotic transfer of uh, it's, a, it's basically gone from animals to humans, right? The, the, the virus. And so, and a lot of it is, uh, uh, is linked back to the illegal wildlife trade that has happened. Um, and it's a pandemic. And, you know, that's nature's way of saying you can't keep messing with me, you know. I'm I'm gonna come up, come back you, come back at you, and basically bite you in the butt. And that's exactly what's happened to the world. Is, um, uh, you know, um, nature's way of culling humans in a bit, in in a way. So, uh, uh, to to the point of the cardiologist, I completely agree with that. Uh, and it, it relates to the fundamental principles laid out by Paul Krugman uh, in that. Um, in economics in that, uh, number one, people respond to incentives. And number two, uh, every transaction is defined by an equal give and take. Um, and if you look at that, it's like, yeah, there's no incentive to change. All right. Uh, and the incentive to change is it could be either a, a, a threat-based in incentive or it could be a a, a reward-based incentive yeah. and so and so and so it's like okay the reward here with the cardiologist is like okay fine well you you can either choose to die or you can either choose to live and and so it's like that's when change happens really and honestly i completely agree with that even with myself uh you know i was spending my mom's money i was spending my dad's money 
And I was spending, uh, you know, basically grant money that we got initially to start Fishing Cat Conservancy and run it. And my wife was like, are you kidding me, man? When the hell are you going to be, you know, taking care of us? Uh, <laughs> and so I was, I was like, man, I got to protect this cat and I got to do something to, to, to take care of myself too and my family. And so that's that's when I said, okay, fine, I'm gonna get start getting paid by this organization, and and you know I'm gonna be the CEO of this organization. You're damn right, you know I'm 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 gonna make a living out of uh, out of doing conservation because otherwise, you know I I can't be basically like depending on other people and extracting them of their resources, and it's gonna that's an incentive. That's an incentive. Like I am I am it working is. I am working for conservation because I get paid for it. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I basically founded the organization. I was like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, uh, uh, for the rest of my life because a, I love it, uh, because this is what I started on my own. B, I get paid for doing what I love. And this is just fascinating. You know, I'm not going to let go of this project because this is something I've learned to make a living out of. And, you know, I don't know if, how much we're going to touch up on this podcast, Phil, but, I find that a lot of the conservation projects around the world are failing because of this one issue. And we were close to failure like 15 times in the last five years. We were going to close our books and be like, you know, we're done with this project because there's no economic or financial sustainability to the whole thing. Well, financial sustainability and economic sustainability for conservation projects is super important uh, because if there is no economic sustainability, then these projects are gonna, are, aren't going to last and these species are not, not going to get conserved. And uh, a lot of my friends who studied wildlife with me are not in wildlife anymore because their number one point is like, dude, there's no money in wildlife. I'm going on to do other jobs that pay me better. And so I'm, I'm doing my best to see if we at Fish and Gap Conservancy can change that. Can we get people well-paid positions? Um, I mean, these have got to be economically grounded positions where literally they're, they're serving humans and wildlife to such an extent that they become invaluable. Kind of like the safari guide, you know? Let's say you were the safari owner of a safari company and you have these field guides and they're really good at their art. They, they know their animals. They, they, know their, they know how to take care of themselves in the wilderness. They know how to take care of people in the wilderness. And they're out there. They've created a job and a business out of that. That's the stuff that's going to keep the, their animals, uh, you know, protect these animals um, because that's their source of livelihood. And so, um, so that's, that's what I want to touch up on going forward is to, is to see how can we create systems and uh you know we, we start earth camps and nature reserves with fishing gap conservancy how can we create these so to speak um i would, I would maybe you can call it socio social enterprise or or cap socio capital whatever it is philanthropic capitalism whatever it is uh you know how do you create these uh, smart economic systems that function to actually benefit and restore uh, nature. Yeah, I mean, co coincidentally, I had exactly the same conversation this morning with Simon Jones of Helping Rhinos. And um, he was saying he's got a corporate background 
and he was saying how important it is and he's he's been able to use his corporate background to treat the charity as a business yep and and i think the the perception i've got and i'm stressing this is a perception not necessarily a reality but there seems to have been for maybe for many years a feeling that it was because it was a good cause and it was a worthy cause then the money would come in from the government or from various different lines or various different places um and you know the, the, it's almost as if there wasn't a need to make it into an independent sustainable thing is it fair to say that it's now changed and the economics of the world especially maybe on the back of the pandemic for example that entities and charities and 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 things the, the sort of things that you're doing have to be have to have or at least the thinking behind it has to be about finding sustainability in the finance and not just treating it as finance is a dirty word when it comes to charity oh yeah yeah i know that see that's that's the thing it's like it's important mm. in like it goes back to the fishermen right everyone's trying to lead their livelihoods um and you know there's got to be an economic system in place if you're not let's let's take humans out of the picture for a second let's say you're the only hum, human on the planet or not the planet let's say you only you have one acre of land right and you got to feed yourself at, at the same time you got to take care of the land um how would you kind of operate that right and that's my current project right now it's like okay fine we depend so much on trade every day you know we make so many transactions with other people um <clears throat> if we were to be isolated and living off of the land how would we do it right um and so uh i'm still trying to figure this out i'm trying to see okay fine um there's there's got to be some sort of a give and take even with nature uh and so we will be working with nature and this is it's amazing i was in sri lanka we were doing our restoration work with our partner the gal oil lodge in sri lanka they attract a lot of people from the uk uh and one of the one of them said uh uh i think the philosophy that i follow in life is we i i like to work with nature and not against it um and so the moment there's a little bit of this against uh nature sort of a divergence or direction uh that's when you know that's when well, as we say in the US the shit hits the fan so uh so the so in 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 conservation projects um you know if you, if we go back to the idea that okay fine nature is producing and we work with nature and we produce these things uh you know a lot of the like, like bamboo toothbrushes are becoming really popular. I mean bamboo is amazing. It's 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 nature based steel. It's literally you can build stuff with it. Uh you can do um uh you know it, it serves a lot of purposes, right? There's a, it's a nature based product. And so then comes the economy part of it which is okay, well people who are producing nature based products are marketing it and um that's got to happen and so in this case for conservation projects they are nature based products we are marketing um you know fishing cats we're marketing uh, mangrove habitats we're marketing and that's for people to come in and go okay yeah this is a worthy cause this is a um 
you know, this is something I I'm, I'm relate uh, I relate to. I want to donate to this cause, or I want to uh, basically protect these animals because you know I, I believe in the future of the planet. I want to be able to invest in the future of the planet. If I die tomorrow, all of my wealth is going to protect this particular area on the planet that will remain in my legacy forever. Even even if it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. We're all dead in the long run. Let's do the right thing for the planet and its sustainability. So there's some sort of a economic drive for this whole thing. And so the positioning of conservation organizations, um, I think, is crucial in this in this market. Uh, that okay, if all these corporates, like you know, we are talking using Apple products, uh, we are living, you know, we're drinking all kinds of things and we're eating all kinds of things. And these are all companies that are doing so well with their products. Why can't we create products out of nature that will do equally or even better? Because, you know, they have, they have much more sustainability factored into them because of the fact that uh, the natural subsidy of the earth is working as a tailwind. So, um, so I agree with you on that. You know, it's that the financial system is a nature is, is a natural mechanism that that will need to be harnessed uh, and i think conservationists and conservation projects are so obsessed with admiring the beauty of nature that they forget the financial and the natural uh, economy that's driving this whole thing and i think it's it's really equally important for us conservationists to to be focused on the financial and the economic side of things to be able to really make true impact i think uh going forward it will be so much more meaningful for people instead of killing dolphins or i, I think that nature I, I love that documentary seaspiracy on netflix uh it really brings to light all the crap that's going on it would be so much won't it be so much more beautiful for people not to be killing dolphins and those same people who are the killing dolphins, if they were given jobs in nature that pay them better, they'd be, do they'd be doing that stuff. I don't think, I don't think the people who are killing dolphins, if, they, if they're paid to do something that's protecting nature, they would be doing that. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true, but it's, it's probably true of, our, of ourselves. I mean, you know, you, you, you just use the example there about toothbrushes. I think, if um, I think the vast majority of us, um, if there's a toothbrush on the shelf in what would be Walmart, probably where you are, as to where we are, um, and it was made of bamboo and it was an extra 25 pence, but it still did the job. I can't imagine that the, ma the majority of people, and I know some people are you know, on the bread line and that's a whole different thing, but the majority of us is certainly in a certain demographic or above a certain demographic. I can't believe that we wouldn't think, okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, take, the, I'll take the bamboo toothbrush. But it, it's not available, is it? The, the, the sustainable option isn't readily available and even if it is available it's not necessarily right in front of your eyes it's f four rows back i agree i agree 100 and this is where this is where we're failing right like okay fine if the guy who manufactured the bamboo toothbrush had pricing power he'd be like dude i'm gonna sell this 25 cents cheaper and it's gonna last longer and it's gonna be right in front of your face 
that's the passion of that guy. If if I were to be selling the bamboo toothbrush, I'd be behind that toothbrush and be like, this is a better product than your crappy whatever plastic toothbrush. This is a better product. I'd be selling the crap out of that. And I'd be I'd be putting pricing power in there. People don't want to pay so much. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna pay, uh, I'm gonna make you pay less for this because A, it costs me less to make it. Because now I've figured out how to make this toothbrush for cheaper than all these plastic companies. And I can I can do this better. See, that's the thing. It's like we need more, we need, we need to basic, we need more competitors in the game. You know, we you know when Simon said about corporate and business background, we need these people to be um we need our community of conservationists to be positioning our products in a much better light such that more of the economy is attracted to conservation projects. And I'll give you a straight up case here, uh, fish and shrimp farming, right? Agriculture and aqu the aquaculture farmers who we were working with, and right now we've sort of stalled our contracts because uh, these, you know, COVID is going on, but our idea is very plain and simple. If we pay an aquaculture farmer more on a contract, to plant mangroves and restore his land back into a forest? Will he choose that livelihood over a livelihood where he's doing aquaculture farming that's destroying the planet, right? So basically, um, when it's not just pay, but it's also like, we're gonna connect this farmer with so many different markets of sustainable seafood. Uh, there's a great company called Selva Shrimp. They source their shrimp from mangrove forests people who literally have mangrove forests in their in their land like you own a mangrove forest it will naturally produce fish shrimp and farm you don't need to pump it with chemicals you don't need to do anything you know you're positioning that product in such a way that it is a win 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 for the environment for the people for the species the animal i mean and the pricing part they've got pricing power like on the shelf it's a cheaper option to do the right thing than to uh, uh, pay for the other option. Now we're talking, you know, that's when we crack the code. Uh, I, I really wish, I really wish there's there's more of these nature-based products out there that are kicking corporate butts, literally like, you know. <laughs> well, I think, I think for that to happen though, I think that um, to a point you're relying on governments aren't you aren't shouldn't shouldn't yeah. and can't governments help those entrepreneurs i mean in the yeah, uk i'm not an expert yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly i'm not i'm not an expert in this but i, I was going to say that in the uk it is known as you probably know it's known as social enterprise but as a kind of semi-entrepreneur myself i don't see very much at all that's pushed by government to incentivize and motivate people like me to come up with social enterprises. There's, 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 you know, I only happen to know what even the term is because I've worked with people who've been look, who've been looking at doing things with social enterprise. I feel it needs to be a lot more effort and energy goes into incentivizing people who are entrepreneurial thinkers, if you like, to mm -hmm. actually get involved in social enterprise projects and in, and maybe even be, you know, provide more education and more readily available education so that when we're thinking about, oh, I want to leave the day job and I want to be an entrepreneur or I want to do my own business, 
instead of just shooting straight down the line to a commercial um, commercial entity, a commercial project, mm-hmm. we're incentivized or pushed or tax incentivized or something so that we are more focused on social enterprise as a possible option. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I agree with you. And I also would like to uh, add to that point saying that, yes, even though the incentives are not directly visible right now, I think the true incentive is um, the fact that, you know, when we go back to the awareness point, like, oh, yeah, people are becoming more and more aware about the environment and doing, um, you know, good for, for, and it's a multi-stakeholder kind of a thing. It's like, uh, you know, everybody, the more wins you can add to your business model, the better and stronger it will be. Uh, and so I think that it is, it's going to transition and it's, it's also, um, I think the competition is going to drive it in that direction because if you're not doing, I mean, literally who's going to start an oil and gas company right now? Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Great. No, that's a, that's a really, really good point. That's a really good point. Look, we're coming to the end, Ashwin. I, in all honesty, I, there's probably another hour and a half in, in this conversation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We can go on first forever. To admit, <laughs> I'm the first to admit. But the first action I think we should take is if you send a copy of this interview to Joe Biden, and I'll send a, I'll send a copy to, to Boris it. Johnson and say, look, get this social enterprise gig going. Come on, get us all moving. Yeah. Get us all galvanized yep, into, uh, into being more social conscious. Yeah, to right, Boris, okay. to Boris and Biden, uh, we need more. We need more uh, social enterprise to be uh, protecting our ecosystems and uh, nature uh, to be able to essentially for the future of humanity. Right? Let's say if you want to go to Mars or if you want to go to another planet, you still have to use Earth's resources. And so, uh, so here, here's yeah, that very message true. for you. Very true. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Okay, Ashwin, I'm going to call it a day there because I know I could talk to you for a lot longer and um, really fascinating stuff and uh, hopefully inspiring. Um, I'm just going to ask you one more question to finish off with, which I try and ask um, a lot of people. Um, You've managed to start to make a living out of your conservation passion. If somebody is in a corporate job right now or in a day or in a, in, in a job or even coming out of university, is there any tips you could give to people to maybe, shall we say, replicate what you've managed to do in sure. terms of change, you know, taking that passion and making it into some kind of, uh, of uh, living? Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. And it's a very important one. Um, uh, I would suggest that, you know, whatever your passion is now as an entrepreneur, people say, yeah, you can monetize your passion. Uh, but I also want you to think about your own internal happiness. What makes you really happy? You, what you, if you want, what you can do is you can take your core belief, your core values and your core happiness and be like, okay, fine. I can build and design a life out of this. And if you look at your education and your conscience or whatever it is, and you're doing the right thing for all the people, you will start to become a more successful and I do air code successful because you don't want to get to a point where you're leveraged, right? You you want to be able to maintain and sustain your happiness. You don't want to go to a point where you start crashing and then you go up and down and up and down. Just try to 
you know, make do, make a living uh, to make a living out of what you love doing the most. Go back to the fundamental of what you love, and then always keep building from there. Um, and and it will happen eventually. Always think long term, and uh, it's not going to happen overnight. And even now, like eight years down the line, I'm still struggling to make a living out of conservation. But it's uh, the pleasure is in the pain. <laughs> you know what i think it might, that might be the title of this episode but then the problem is if i put that in the title they might think it's about something else this video <laughs> the pleasure is in the pain they Fishing might think cats. it's something a bit more yeah yeah <laughs> you know we forgot you know i love these creatures i'm going to find out more about these creatures and uh, sure. uh fishing cats are so Frankly, they're so cute, so you shouldn't have too much problem getting buying. Um, and uh, you know, cute is good. Cute is is very positive and very engaging. Uh, so, good luck to you, and thanks very much for joining me. And good luck to the fishing cats. Um, obviously, I hope that they survive and prosper going forward. And um, as I say, I'll put that link to the uh, to the website. Um, just say it again. It's website address: fishcat.org fishcat.org that's what i thought it was okay right i'll pop that underneath as well for people to go and have a look and um thank you very much indeed and as i say maybe at some point when we get back to some kind of normality and you're in the uk uh, we can say hello and uh, and have a drink and uh, discuss a little bit more about our friend the uh, the fishing cat absolutely We're looking forward to drinking like a fish with you <laughs> <laughs> love it love it thanks ashwin take care all right, take care. Thank bye -bye. you. Bye-bye.